Well, last time I didn't really get very far, so tonight is really finishing off um, last time's study. Uh, I wandered away from my notes, I think, and the time disappeared, which is typical of me. Um, but what I was talking about last time was um, to say that we are now moving on to a new section, thinking of the revelation of God the revelation of God's plan of redemption, moving on from how that was revealed in the book of Genesis to how uh, God reveals his plan of redemption during the period of Moses. And um, I was emphasizing the fact that um, the Bible is one revelation of God's covenant of grace. And I was emphasizing the unity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, really repeating a lot of the things I'd said before, but really for the purpose of trying to clear the road or clear the weeds away before we get too far into the um, revelation under Moses, I wanted to lay out some clear parameters for our understanding, and that's what I, really what I want to complete this evening. Um, so last time the emphasis was on the unity of the Bible the unity of this covenant of grace the covenant of grace is a, is a term just to remind you which is basically um, summing up in a theological term the fact that God saves sinners by grace alone um, through faith alone and in Christ alone that is the covenant of grace. That's the story of the gospel. And that is the whole um, story of the Bible. It grows and progresses um, right through the Old into the New Testament. Um, but tonight, <clears throat> I want to continue to, to emphasize that the Bible is a unity, but also emphasize the fact that this covenant of grace, um, particularly as we come into the Mosaic period, the period under Moses, this covenant of grace is administered, historically administered, in a different way. The covenant of grace doesn't uh, change, but it's managed or administered in a different way. And I want to trace how the covenant of grace is administered through the Bible and also into the New Testament tonight. That's rather a big, a big um, bite of the apple. But I think if we can understand that, then we'll be well placed then to go on deeper into the uh, revelation that we see in the rest of the Pentateuch. Um, so keeping things as simple as possible, to begin with at least... There are essentially two different ways which God administers this gospel, this covenant of grace in the Bible. During most of the Old Testament, uh, the covenant of grace was administered in one way. And during the New Testament, the, new, the covenant of grace is administered in a different way or in another way. The Bible speaks of, of, the, of this in terms of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, or the Old Testament and the New Testament. This was predicted, this was prophesied 
in the Old Testament itself. This is very basic, I know, but it's good just to, um, to state the obvious sometimes. Jeremiah prophesied that there would be such a thing as a new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 8, 13 says, In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So that's interesting, isn't it? So although in Reformed teaching we emphasize the fact that the covenant of grace is one revelation, we also have to get the balance right. There is also a newness, a newness that comes in with the New Testament which I want to talk about a bit tonight. So let's just quickly go through this, and there will be an element of repetition of this, but forgive me for that. So this covenant of grace, let's very quickly, or to begin with quickly, trace this in the Old Testament, but I do want to to go on a bit of... um, and it scurses, if you like, a bit of a tangent, because one of the one of the things that really can be quite can confuse people is what is the Christian's relationship with the law of Moses or the Ten Commandments? Um, and I want just to spend a bit of time clearing that up, because I think if we understand that, then it'll help us quite a lot. So the covenant of grace. God's plan of redemption, saving sinners by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This was revealed, beginning to be revealed, first of all, um, as we've studied from Adam to Abraham, that was one section, if you like, and we studied that in great detail. I'm not going to say much. Man fell into sin. God promised Adam and Eve that he would send a deliverer. And in Genesis 3.15, we have that first gospel promise. Um, Derek Kidner <clears throat> calls it the first glimmer of the gospel. It's only a glimmer. In fact, you, you, wouldn't even, you can easily miss it if you don't uh, really notice it. Only a glimmer, but truth enough for Adam and Eve to be saved. It was enough gospel for Adam and Eve to be saved. And we studied how... The covenant of grace was administered in that very early stage of history, just in small families, and an altar-type worship. Altar and altar here and an altar there, simple altars, and the people of God gathered around these altars in small families, and they worshipped God. And then we studied Noah and his family, and how the covenant of grace was progressed through them. But I'm not going to go into that because we've studied that at length. And then the covenant of grace moves on in its progression from Abraham to Moses. Um, And I suppose, as I've said before, the covenant of grace in the Old Testament is clearest. It's most clearly seen and understood through the covenant God made with Abraham, which we, again, studied at length. 
And that, I think it was Junior in his, in his prayer, was emphasising this, that, that really that what God was saying there was, I will be a God unto thee. That was the covenant with Abraham. I will be your God. I will, you will be my people. I will be your God. What a wonderful covenant that is. And during this time, promises from God become very specific, far more specific than they have been up till then, up till then. And the need for faith becomes clearer. The need for faith to receive the promises becomes more prominent. And Paul picks that up in great, uh, great length in Romans and elsewhere, the faith of Abraham. And temporal and spiritual and earthly and heavenly promises are given. Um, but the main blessing, although there was promise of land and promise of, uh, of offspring and all the rest of it, the main um, element of the Abrahamic promises, I will be thy God and thou shalt be my people. And that's what being a Christian means. Coming into the Abrahamic promise and God becomes our God, we become his people. And the blessing of Abraham will come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, Galatians teaches us. And this salvation is not through works, it's through faith in Christ. True righteousness comes through believing that God will keep his promises. Just like Abraham, if we believe um, the gospel, if we believe in the cross, um, salvation comes to us personally and individually. Um, and belief, faith, is often, it doesn't translate very well in, in, in English, but the faith doesn't mean, it doesn't mean believe in the sense that I agree, that um, there's these series of statements that I agree with intellectually. I mean, it does include that. But faith is really, what Abraham's faith was, was that he was fully relying upon, trusting cleaving to God to keep his promise and that's when you become a Christian we exercise faith which is more than just saying the creed although I'm a big fan of creeds as you know but it's more than that it's I as an individual I'm fully putting all the weight I'm risking everything on this being true and I am fully relying on Jesus Christ to be my saviour that's what faith is and God says, that is the route, that is the method, the door through which we receive salvation. It's not a work. It's saying, it's the opposite of a work in a way, isn't it? It's saying, I can't do anything for myself, therefore I put myself at your mercy and I receive salvation. And so Abraham, this covenant of grace, as I've said many times, that God made with Abraham has never been revoked. Um, it's never been replaced. Some people don't agree with that. But the Paul teaches that the Abrahamic covenant is really the gospel promise that the Gentiles now come into. Now, the thing is, is that God never changed the covenant of grace, but he, he didn't revoke it, but he did add to it. 
we did add to it, and this is what I want to go and uh, I want to explain a little bit tonight. So then the next section is from Moses to Christ. As history progressed, God added to the covenant of grace. What did he add to the covenant of grace? Well, he added the law. He added the Mosaic covenant, um, which we will study and, and we're going to begin to study tonight. The law uh, was added. Um, this law was revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai. And this law is set out from Exodus 19 verse 16 to the end of Leviticus. But what I want to explain right from the beginning is that the law has never been a substitute for grace. God did not intend that man was to be saved by keeping the law. Now this can be very confusing because Paul's whole whole argument in Romans is that, um, you know, we, we... you must uh, and Galatians is that you you guys must stop trying to keep the law as the way of being saved. But God never meant it to be that. The, the thing is, is that people Jews, the Judaizers, treated it like that. But that was never God's intention. The covenant of grace was never ended. God didn't say, "Well, now it is through keeping the law of Moses that you are now saved." Therefore, the covenant of grace is stopped. Um, People misunderstood the law. Um, and if we read the New Testament carefully, it's saying that the law was, ne- was never intended as a means of salvation. So I repeat, God did not do away with the covenant of grace when he added the law. But he did add the law. And we need to understand why he added the law. Which I'll go on to explain. Um, yes, as I say... Paul was very clear. He said, by the, Galatians 2.16, By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It was never meant to. And so this is the sense in which we should understand those scriptures which indicate that the law is abolished and no longer continues. Now, you need to listen to all of what I've got to say because there's a balance here. It can be confusing because there are scriptures which indicate um, that the law is abolished for the Christian and no longer continues. And there are scriptures which indicate an ongoing role for the law for the New Testament believer. You, you have different scriptures on the surface saying different things. So we must try and get the balance of scripture right at this point. And that's, what I, that's the sort of confusion that I want to clear up tonight so that we, we, can, we all understand what the law, our relationship to the law. So first of all, and I'm talking here about the law, the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Laws, it's not just the Ten Commandments, there was the civil law, the ceremonial law. But every command of God prior to Moses and since is also God's law. Every time God says do this or you mustn't do that, that's his law. Which is why the Jews actually talk about the Old Testament in its totality as the law. Um, 
there's a sense in which the law is abolished and no longer continues for the New Testament believer. We have to say that. There is a sense in which that is true. The Apostle Paul often sets the law and the gospel in contrast with each other. Um, So, for example, speaking of the law in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 11, Paul says, For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. It's talking about the law. The law is done away with. The gospel remains. Paul writes of the believer being delivered from the law and he speaks of the believer being dead to the law. For example, Romans 7, verses 4 and 6. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. And then verse 6, but now... We are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So we have verses like that, which are saying the Christian is dead to the law, no longer under the law, etc. And yet in other places, Paul enforces the Ten Commandments upon the New Testament believer maybe enforces is the wrong word but uses the Ten Commandments in exhorting the New Testament believer for example Romans 13 verses 8 to 10 owe no man anything but to love one another for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandments, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. Well, there's Paul quoting the law to Christians to encourage them to live the Christian life. And we get Paul citing the fifth commandment, In Ephesians 6 verse 2, honour thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. So how how do we make head or tail of that? So we have these verses, you're saying the law, you're dead to it, you're no longer under it, and yet we've got Paul applying it. So how do we understand this? Well, the only way we can understand this is to go through the senses in which the law is no the senses in which the law is discontinued for the christian and the senses in which the law continues for the christian because both are true both are true so if someone asks if if the christian is still under the law and they answer yes or no with no explanation then they haven't understood what's going on is more complicated than that. So firstly, um, and I think this is the main emphasis in the New Testament, firstly, in the epistles particularly, Paul and the other um, 
apostles teach that the Christian is no longer under the law in the sense, I believe, that the Christian is no longer under the covenant of works. In other words, outside of Christ, the only way to satisfy God, the only way to satisfy the demands of a holy God is to perfectly keep the moral law of God in thought, word and deed consistently and perfectly throughout all of your life, every second, every minute of your life. And no one can do that. Um, Well, there was one, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, And he, as the last Adam, fulfilled the covenant of works. We spent a long time on the covenant of works. I hope you remember what that is. We can talk about it if you've forgotten. Jesus, as the representative of the new humanity, his people, fulfilled the covenant of works. And as the last Adam, just as death and sin followed Adam's disobedience, righteousness and peace follows Christ's obedience of the covenant of works. You see, it's only really in Reformed theology that there's, there's as mu- almost as much emphasis on the life of Christ as on the death of Christ. Christ saves us by his life and his death, not just his death. He had, as the last Adam, Jesus, the Lord, obtained eternal life on behalf of his people. So in this sense, as a way to be saved, the Christian is dead to the law and is no longer under the law as a way to be saved because we are now under grace. Does that make sense? And although the law of Moses was never meant to be a way of salvation anyway, as it happened in the minds and the hearts of the Jews, it came to be seen and treated as a means of justification through the keeping of the law. But Paul spends a great deal of time demolishing that idea. Um, By the deeds connected with the law, with law keeping, shall no flesh, no man be justified in the sight of God. But everyone that is justified is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. The Jews who sought righteousness through, through the law did not attain it. So we get verses like Romans 9, 31 and 32. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not, a, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, or why? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. That they turned the law into something it was never meant to be and it became something they, they tripped over every time because they used it as, a, as a, a, a works-based way of trying to get right with God. And Paul says they never obtained righteousness through uh, trying to keep the law because they didn't use their faith. They didn't use faith. 
You see, they didn't. They weren't like the Christian who throws himself. Saying, I have come to the end of myself. I cannot do this. I have. I'm empty. I'm useless. I'm. I've failed, and I cast myself on you from. No, it was right. Let's wake up this morning, and I'm going to. I'm going to go through all these. Um, laws and rituals and I'm going to make sure I stick to the letter of the law and I'm not going to do anything wrong today and I'm going to build up a track record which at the end of the day and at the end of my life will so impress God that he'll let me in that I'll pass it's a different that's religion that's what most all religions are apart from the true religion of our faith In that sense, then, we are dead to the law. There's another sense in which the law no longer applies to us. We are no, we are no longer under the law in the sense that we no longer remain under the yoke of the bondage of the law. The law created a spirit of bondage for the people who were under it. Christ has made us free from this bondage and commands us to stand in the liberty of gospel grace and not to get entangled again with the yoke of bondage. You see, in the hands of Christ, rather than in the hands of Moses, the law is liberating and the Christian willingly embraces the gospel and serves the law of God with his whole body and heart and soul and mind. The law is not kept as a means to obtain eternal life, but it's kept as the natural outflow of the principle of eternal life welling up within us, which is what Jesus promised would happen. This is why the law in the the New Testament is referred to as the law of liberty and as the law of Christ. I think one of the problems we've got is that we, when we, you know, this is probably, you know, people like like myself's fault, is that when we speak of the ongoing role of the law in the church, and there is an ongoing role of the law in the church, we must use the New Testament language. We must use New Testament terms because otherwise it gives the wrong impression and causes confusion. And if we're not very careful, creates a, a yoke of bondage. The law for the Christian is a law of liberty. It's the law of Christ. Um, and the Christian fulfills the law, not perfectly, not consistently, but if we live as we should and if we live as we can, if we walk in the Spirit, this is what Paul says can happen. This this blows my mind. Romans 8. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. This is it. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh 
but after the Spirit. Do you understand what that's saying? The Christian, if they walk in the Spirit, if they keep in step with the Spirit, is really um, an accurate translation there. If we walk hip to hip, step by step, with the Holy Spirit in tandem with him, if, if, our, our, if there's, a, our, in a sense, a connection which is so close that it's one heartbeat, then we will fulfill the law, the moral law of God. Something which had never been able to be done in the Old Testament. Again, never been able to be done through uh, religion or law-keeping as a means of salvation. And so, the law is transformed in the hands of Christ. The Sermon on the Mount lifted the law of Moses to a whole new level. And that's the picture of how a Christian should live. It's the picture of a Christian life. And it's impossible that anyone could live that life unless the life of God is in them. And, and even with the life of God, we still fail because we still have sin remaining. But... We do have, it is only us who can fulfill the law of God. Despite the fact we fail, we can do it. Well, the Holy Spirit within us can do it and is doing it. It's an amazing thing. Also, then, so we're dead to the yoke dead to the bondage of the law we're also dead to the terrors of the law the law as given on Mount Sinai was spoken amidst fire and lightning and thunder even the mountain shook and even Moses exceedingly feared and quaked let alone the ordinary people see the law works wrath the bible says and leaves a fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation and the christian is free of that the christian is free of that of that terror of the law um, christ took the curse and we receive the blessing of the gospel so if you if you're in a relationship with god which is characterised by fear and dread and a kind of cowering before God, a kind of servile attitude, you've got it all wrong. You haven't got the right thing. That's, old, that, 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 that's what people felt like under the law, at the bottom of Mount Sinai. They exceedingly feared and quaked. Now, don't get me wrong, we, we, we do need to fear God, but it's not that kind of fear. Jesus said, henceforth I call you not servants, but I have called you friends. What what an amazing relationship we have with God. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them, which is in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So we're, you know... We know we're dead to the terror and the fear of the law and we're, we move to this position of, of, of knowing we're not under condemnation of the law. 
And we're in this adopted relationship where we call God Father. Uh, the spirit of sonship is within us. We're God's friends. Um, and, and it's a completely different thing. So we need to check our hearts. You know, if we're, if we're, if we're praying or living in fear of, you know, God is, God is someone almost to avoid then we haven't got the right thing. That's not being a Christian. So in that sense also, we are no longer under the law. We are dead to the law in that sense. And make sure you are, dear friends, that's my advice, make sure you are dead to the law in, the, in, the, in, that, in those ways. Because you'll never be happy as a Christian if you're not. And, and there are a lot of Christians that have got this wrong. If you don't understand and if you don't walk in your Christian liberty, you will never be happy as a Christian because you'll be living in bondage and you'll be living in fear, servile fear. We are free. We have to begin there. Sometimes for various reasons we choose not to use our freedom to do certain things, maybe for the sake of the conscience of a weaker brother. Um, but we are not subject to dead religion. We are not subject to rules of touch not and eat not and don't do this and don't do that. We are free. We, are, we, are, we have Christian liberty. We're not under the yoke of bondage. Um, if it's not a sin... We are free. We're as free as a person can be. But Paul puts this in with the right balance. Of course he does. In Galatians 5.13, this is the balance we need to find. This is a good way of living our lives. Galatians 5.13. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Now, depending on what sort of personality you've got you'll either jump to um, the first bit or the second bit you know the some personalities will jump to say well hey you see liberty is just an occasion to the flesh liberty is bad others will, will, will miss it out altogether we have to have both we in fact we have to start with the first bit we are called to liberty we are free we're not there are things that we can choose to do if, if they're provided by God in God's good world we're free to have it may not be always wise but we are free we're not under dead religion but with that liberty comes responsibility to make sure that it's not an occasion that will lead us into fleshly things and also responsibility to other people, particularly new Christians, um, who, we, who, you know, we we may do something which we're perfectly at liberty to do, and they see us doing it, and they're not mature enough to understand why we're doing it, and we are we're, we become an offence to them. So we use our wisdom and say, well, for the sake of that brother, I won't partake of this or that. But that's not that doesn't take away your fact that you're free to do it. You're called to liberty. So it's a different attitude that we have. So use your liberty in a holy way, but use it. Please use it. You're called to it. 
You're not under the law. You're under grace. You're a gospel man, a gospel woman. Holiness is holiness is not used. Is let me put it this way: holiness, at least in my understanding, is not is not avoiding using your liberty. Holiness is learning how to use your liberty. Holiness is not avoiding the good thing God's give, God gives us. Holiness is learning how to use them properly and in a holy way. You know, many people have tried avoid shutting themselves up in a away from the world in a top of a mountain or in a monk cell. It doesn't work. You just bring your your lust and your sins come come with you. Holiness is using the good things of this life in 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 a holy way. So we need to have a healthy, positive attitude to all the things God gives us. You know. Um, there are no extra marks for being, um, you know, for denying things which we are perfectly lib- at liberty to, to receive. God, God had to teach Peter that, didn't he, in the, in the Acts of the Apostles? So enjoy your, enjoy your roast dinner and what, and what have you. There's no extra marks for being miserable about it. You know, there's many things God has given us for us to enjoy. We use it responsibly. So in that sense, that, and that covers then the senses in which the Christian is no longer under the law. Let's check the time. Um, but there are other senses in which the law remains relevant and important for the Christian, as I said just now. And when we read the New Testament, it's obvious that the gospel does not make the law null and void. Only in the senses in which I've set out. It is not set aside or rendered of no effect. Paul explicitly teaches this. Uh, and in light of, uh, of the other statements he makes about the law, you know, I say the careless reader can become very confused. Um, so we need to read this carefully. Um, so Paul says, for example, Romans 3.31, I mean, this just on its own proves that the law is not chucked away in the gospel era. He says, 3.31 of Romans, Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Um, now, how, how are we to understand that verse? He's saying the gospel or justification by faith establishes the law. Justification by faith puts the law on its proper basis. It establishes, establishes the law on its proper foundation. The New Testament gospel does not does not knock the law down it stands the law up this is what we need to understand getting right with God by faith and not works establishes the law in other words establishes the original pure purpose God had for the law of Moses and all of God's law 
Um, What Paul is saying here and elsewhere is that the law, which is the moral law of God, um, which sets out what God requires of his creatures, the gospel establishes the law because it is only those who are already justified and, and pursue the law of God through faith and not by works, who will ever fulfil the righteousness of the law. It's only the justified ones that will ever fulfil the law. Therefore, justification by faith establishes the law. That's what he's saying, I think. If we get right with God first by faith alone, and then if we live in the freedom of the Christian life by the Spirit we will be changed from the inside and begin to love the very things the moral law of God requires. Not as works of merit, um, but as the fruits of the Holy Spirit. This, you know, if I may say, this is where the Roman Catholic Church goes so wrong. They, they see the keeping of the law as building up merit with God for salvation. We, as Reformed Christians, see keeping the law as the fruit, the output, the outcome of being justified by faith and being filled with the Holy Spirit because we are saved, not by, not by works of the law, not by the law at all. But as it happens... Through justification we are filled but with the Holy Spirit and the life of the Spirit works through us and the righteousness of the law is kept by us who are justified by faith. And that's how we need to understand these seemingly contradictory statements in the scriptures about the law. Um, Romans 7 verse 6 maybe now we can understand Romans 7 verse 6 a bit better where it says but now we are delivered from the law that being dead wherein we were held that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter so you know, it seems a bit strange when you first read, we're delivered from the law, but then we can, we're, to, we're to serve it, we're to work it out. But, the big, but, but we need there to see the big difference is, is the newness in contrast to the oldness, the contrast between the spirit versus the letter. And we must make sure that we are Christians um, who do not serve in the oldness of the letter. There, there are, there are, it's possible to do that. To live a kind of Christian life which is old. It's serving the oldness of the, of the letter of the law. And not the newness that comes with the, with the life in the Holy Spirit. Don't be a Christian who serves in the oldness of the letter. Even when even when you read Christian literature, some, some, sometimes literature which is recommended to us, make sure it's not dragging you back to the oldness of the letter. Read books which bring you into the newness of the Spirit. Be sensitive. 
is this is this letter or spirit is this trying to put me back into bondage or is this bringing me into the newness of the liberty of the children of God always seek the newness of Christ because the gospel does not do away with the law it establishes it and so you and I and I'm running out of time again you and I can use the law can use the law should use the law and indeed through the new birth the law has been encoded into us the law was was originally written by the finger of God on cold hard tablets of stone but that same finger of God has written the same law of God into the fleshy tables of our hearts the law is internalized now into your heart if you're born again um, it's no longer just an external thing the law for us is also an internal thing just got five minutes I think so God's law I, I hope that will enable us to understand the law of Moses. When we come to study a bit more, um, actually more connected to the actual scriptures, try and bear all that in mind. You know, the law had a purpose. Uh, It was never meant to replace the covenant of grace. Men tried to do that. Um, There is only one gospel right through the whole Bible. The law, in some senses, has ended for us, in other senses, continues for us, but in a very different way. We have a very different relationship to the law. Uh, Our um, lawgiver is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We look to him. We take the law now from the hand, not of Moses, but from the hand of Christ. There's a book, or I thought it was a book I was searching for and searching for with that title, but it was, it was in fact a sermon by John Gill. He was a famous Baptist. In fact, he was, he, he was, a, he was a very, very um, strong Calvinist, so no, no weakling. But he, his sermon title was The Law in the Hands of Christ. And he spoke about how different it is taking the law from his hands. Not from Moses now. We, we take the law from the hands of Christ. And so you and I, dear friends, have this ongoing relationship with the law. But the dread is gone. The terror is gone. The bondage of God is gone. The law is the evidence. Our keeping of the law is evidence of the work of God in our lives. Amen. Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com. That's grace2seekers at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.co.uk.